You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was just on Friday that Honolulu's Sensitive Places Gun Ordinance was signed into law by Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. In November of last year, the county of Hawaii was the first to enact new gun laws. And today, state lawmakers will vote on legislation to make gun laws more uniform across the islands. HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us this morning to talk about this. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. So this morning, the full Senate will be voting on statewide gun measures. That's Senate Bill 1230. And it's the state legislature's encompassing firearm measure. It establishes sensitive places and training and education requirements for gun owners across the state. And the Office of the Attorney General helped to create the framework of the bill, and they started working on it after the U.S. Supreme Court's Bruin decision last summer. And uh, Dave Day is the special assistant to the Attorney General. The Bruin case was so um, such a sea change from anything else that we've ever seen really in constitutional law before. And the test that's in Bruin regarding what it means to comply with the Second Amendment is so unique that it was one where all firearms laws in the state really needed to be reassessed with fresh eyes. Um, Coupled with that, what we all know, which is that gun violence across the nation is out of control. It's out of control. And what we wanted to do was to be very proactive. We put a lot of resources and very, very good people into crafting this bill as best as we could um, because we want to maintain the essential culture and life for people in Hawaii, notwithstanding a Supreme Court decision from 2022. And that's something that we're going to have to fight for um, and continue to fight for moving forward. So there was a team over at the Attorney General's office, and they were working on this bill since late last year. And at the beginning of the state ledge session, they helped introduce it with the help of state lawmakers. And Deputy Solicitor General Nick McLean says the sensitive place part of the bill is similar to what's been enacted in New York and New Jersey. So broadly speaking, government properties, hospitals, schools, bars or restaurants that serve alcohol and the beach are all covered under the sensitive place. It also includes parking lots across from these places. The bill really is designed to protect three categories of places. And I think this is a helpful way to sort of think about uh, what it means to be a sensitive place. So first, the bill protects what we call high density locations. These are places where uh, people congregate and where as a result of that, there's often a particularly high risk uh, to gun violence. Uh, This includes places like entertainment venues, stadiums, bars and restaurants and public transportation. Second, there's a category of places that have uh, particularly vulnerable populations. This includes places like schools, daycare facilities, playgrounds, uh, hospitals, and, uh, and homeless shelters. And then third, there's a category of locations of government activity. So this includes places like courthouses, polling places, the legislature, and other types of government buildings. And so ultimately, we think that each of these categories of places is appropriate from a public safety perspective, uh, is consistent with the traditional scope of regulation in this area, looking back all the way to the 19th century and beyond, and ultimately, partly because of that, is legally defensible. So what uh, Nick McLean was saying was that legally defensible is kind of the big term and the big idea and also why the Attorney General's office wanted to get involved. So during public testimony of the hearings of these bills, people have said they plan to sue the state over Second Amendment violations. And Day has has said that the Attorney General's office is prepared to defend it. This bill strikes a very appropriate balance um, between public safety protecting people and children in Hawaii, along with honoring or at least uh, respecting the Second Amendment rights of individuals. Um, The way that this bill, we believe, has gotten stronger, and I do believe it has gotten stronger over the legislative process, is really um, based upon the strong leadership, again, of particularly Senator Wakai and Representative Tarnas, who looked at all the testimony that came in from a variety of sources, whether it be from gun advocates, from police departments around the country, from prosecutors' offices, and from common individuals, and was able to use that to craft, again, this sort of balanced bill. 
And after this statewide bill passes, um, since both Hawaii Island and Oahu have enacted sensitive place laws already, those will remain in effect. Um, and county laws county laws are allowed to be more strict than statewide provisions, of course. And do we know, I mean, based on the guidelines that, that these counties have passed, are they more strict than the state legislation that's up for vote today? In some places. So on Oahu, and I believe in the state law, there's a rule that you have to have a sign that says guns are allowed in this location, whereas on Hawaii Island, you have to have a sign that says that guns are not allowed. So it's kind of that opposite play. So that will likely change. And then them. where are we at with the other counties? They've started to uh, work toward you know, enacting different laws? I believe the other counties were waiting for the state to weigh in. So when I believe Honolulu was looking at coming up with their own statewide or countywide gun legislation, they wanted to do it before the state because they were scared of a stopgap period. Because when county police departments began issuing concealed carry weapons or licenses, uh, they didn't want there to be a moment where there weren't laws. Yeah, they wanted to have something in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And then uh, the lawmakers will vote on that, uh, what, this morning? I believe the Senate came in at 10 a.m. Um, I'm not sure how they voted on it, but it had uh, favorable uh, an outlook for it. All right, well, thanks so much, Sabrina. We have been hearing from HBR's Sabrina Bowden. She'll be tracking other key bills in the waning days of the legislative session. And, you know, we've covered this topic of guns in a Collins show of last week about concealed carry laws. But here's some comments and concerns from our listeners that we received on our talkback line. Hi, this is Stacey Arnold from Honolulu calling regarding the new gun legislation. I'm just amazed that in the current climate of increased shootings all over the United States, that Hawaii is actually making it easier for people to have guns. And no, I do not feel safer. I feel a lot less safe. And Eric from the Big Island says, I have used firearms as tools while living in the country to dispatch feral pigs and mongooses and the occasional suffering livestock. And their use as such is always fatal. I think it is very sad for the country and Hawaii that the Supreme Court has enshrined concealed carry as a right under the Second Amendment. I am grateful to have grown up in a state where up until now concealed carry was not allowed. My opinion is that guns have become a ridiculous fetish for many Americans aided and abetted by the arms industry. Leave your guns at home. Also from the Big Island, Bucky Martin. This is in regards to a licensing or permitting concealed weapons. I mean, does not our state government notice the proliferation of violent murders and mass murders? Have they not noticed that? And with the intercultural and chaos that goes on here sometimes, this conflict between cultures, it would be just so simple to whip out a gun as we saw at that vulgar, barbaric cockfighting. So I please, I mean, I think the, I think it's out of the barn. It's too late to close it. All I can say is somebody who's injured because of this, I do hope they sue the, the state government. And thanks for the feedback. You want to share your concerns about guns in sensitive places? Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. Today on The Daily, the federal government has taken over a third failing bank, this time First Republic. We look at whether we're at the end of this banking crisis, or the start of a new phase of financial pain. I'm Michael Bavaro. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30... 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from BAMP Project, presenting the Doobie Brothers in their 50th anniversary tour, 7 p.m. this Friday at the Waikiki Shell. Tickets at bampproject.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're digging through the film vaults and spotlighting an actor whose face may be familiar to television and movie viewers. He was prolific in booking his acting gigs, but never broke through to the front ranks of stardom. Born a Louis Albert a Hendrick Denninger Jr. in Poughkeepsie, New York, our mystery man is probably best remembered portraying Hawaii's fictitious governor in 12 seasons of the original Hawaii Five-O series. His resume runs deep, having appeared in more than 150 movies, 300 television shows, a radio series, and four TV series. However, Hawaii Five-O wasn't his first Pacific Island story. In fact, that honor goes to the 1942 movie Beyond the Blue Horizon, in which he co-starred with screen goddess Dorothy Lamour. In 1948, he starred in another Pacific-based film, Unknown Island, and in that flick, he shared screen time with dinosaurs. For today's quiz, we want to know this actor's name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. In public radio, there's a phenomenon called the driveway moment. It's when you're driving somewhere and you reach your destination, but you linger in the car just so you can catch the end of a great story. Well, with the HPR mobile app, you can pick up that story anytime you want, replay national shows as well as local news stories, and make driveway moments a thing of the past. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. A new medication dosing system for county emergency medical services across the state will be rolling out this year. It's meant to prevent medication dosing errors in children during emergency situations. With EMS staff stretched thin across our state, the new system also aims to take some pressure off emergency medical technicians and paramedics calculating dosages out in the field. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with two staff members from the Department of uh, uh, Health Al Bronstein, uh, Chief of uh, EMS and Injury Prevention Branch, and Christy Luke, the EMS for Children Manager. We start with Bronstein. How often are we seeing pediatric overdosing errors in emergency situations? We're actually not seeing an issue. Of the 126,000 transports a year, roughly, throughout the state, only about 9,000 are children up to age 18. So 700 of those end up getting medications. So children have to be dosed by weight, and it's difficult to keep that all in one's head, especially in an emergency situation. So this new system will help 
prevent dosing errors, and it also tracks what was given, which is entered then into the patient's medical record. So we can study it for QA purposes and such. So it's not so much that we have a problem. We want to make it easier to care for the pediatric patients. That's the whole point of this. And this system is used around the country, and we're implementing it here in the state. I didn't think there was a huge problem I feel like we would have known about it or it would be a much more high-profile issue if there was, but I figured this was like a preventative measure, like a preventative care measure. In an emergency situation, can you talk about what a scenario would look like, the stress that our EMS personnel are under? What kind of scenario would there be where there might be a, a dosing area? Well, the most stressful situation would be a cardiac arrest where the child would need to be resuscitated. And the medicines used for the resuscitation to save them are very small amounts and must be dosed by weight. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy, for instance, to get a decimal point off, Mm -hmm. which then could cause more problem than the problem one's dealing with. So that's the idea here that the system says give X number of milligrams IV and and there's no question once the once the patient's age and the weight gets input into the system and the drug is chosen. So that's the whole idea to prevent mathematical errors. I mean the paramedics have an idea of what needs to be given and can see and can understand that, but sometimes people in the heat of the moment it's a very stressful. Children are very stressful to begin yeah. with because we don't treat that many children compared to the adults. So this will aid the paramedic in giving them a level of comfort that they just have to read the amount. It's kind of like giving change. You notice you ever in the old days, people would have to count out the change. Right, and right. then they, they'd have to be thinking about it, and they're rubbing their head, and thinking, mm, how much change do I give? But now the cash registers, you put in how much the customer gives, mm-hmm. gives $10, the bill's 696 and it tells you exactly what to give them back. So that's the same idea here. Okay, That's a good analogy. Yeah. And under yeah. pressure right. adds to it, right? Right, right. When we talk about weight, are EMS staff experienced enough or, or do they just see it enough in their in their jobs where they can kind of just eyeball how much a patient weighs? Or is there another method by which they calculate the patient's weight? No, they use the Braslow tape. They can use the Braslow tape, which is another device. Or It's known that, that say, two-year-old child may weigh X that one calculates it. Or sometimes the parents will say, my child weighs 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. And and then they convert that to kilograms. That's another issue because all the medicines are dosed by kilograms in the metric system, not pounds. And there's several steps to this. There's determining the patient's weight and age, then selecting the medication, then medications come in different concentrations. Then one has to determine how much in milligrams, for instance, one wants to give, and the amount will be determined by the concentration of the medication to begin with. So there's many places where things can go awry. Mm -hmm. If one thinks it's one milligram per cc, that's one thing, but if it's, say, 10 milligrams per cc and one doesn't put that together... It can be a tenfold dosing error. Mm-hmm. So in the system, and Christy can tell you more, we've preloaded all the standard medications that the paramedics carry. So the concentrations are already in the system. So it makes it much easier for the for the medic to say the child weighs 10 kilos, they need 5 milligrams of X drug, input that, and it tells you how many cc's of the drug to administer. And then it tracks that in the patient's electronic medical record. So there's many places along the way that one can have error. So this minimizes those possibilities. Yeah, so having to do math under pressure it's, mm-hmm. it can be can lead to errors. And when we talk about errors, it's not only overdosing, it's underdosing, or even omitting if they don't feel comfortable, they might omit medicating altogether. I do want to get into the new system. Let's talk about how it works. 
So it's actually a software that's okay. going to be used by our providers. And what it is is, like he said, it's weight. Usually you use weight mm-hmm. to determine what kind of dose to give these patients. And weights, of course, range with age. So this program actually uses age because when the 911 call comes in, they get the complaint, the chief complaint, what's wrong, and they get the age of the patient. They don't get the weight over the phone. So the idea is on route to the scene, they can actually pull up this software. They can have it on whatever device they have it downloaded on, and they select the age of the patient, and it gives an ideal weight for that age. And when they click that button, all the medications that could possibly be needed for this case will come up on their screen. So for easy access, and it'll show the concentration, the dosage, the routes that they can possibly give the medication, whether it be intramuscular or IV. And then from there, they can actually filter it. It's kind of great because they have this feature where it integrates with our state standing order. So you could choose a protocol, like say seizure. They get the call, they have a kid having a seizure. They'll click seizure and it'll just, it's like a filter. So it'll filter out what medications. So instead of the long list, they'll have just the short list of medications that might be used for seizures. So that kind of gets the provider more confident So it makes them ready to see this child before they even get to the scene. So boosting their confidence kind of increases patient safety as well, right? What happens if they show up on scene and the child is bigger or taller or what if they're... Or smaller. Yeah, or smaller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what if their age doesn't match, you know, the average size? In that case, so this is primarily, this is ideal weight, right, based Mm -hmm. on their age. Mm -hmm. If they get there and, of course, they're bigger than expected or they have some kind of condition where they're smaller than, than expected, then then they'll have to take out that um, that brassel tape that Dr. Okay. Bronstein was talking about earlier and actually measure um, based on their the length of the child. Oops. And then from there, they can adjust what the weight on the software Okay. and okay. pull up the correct dosing, the correct medications. And it's not just medications, it's equipment too. So mm-hmm. sizes of different types of equipments that they would use on a certain sized child. And when you talk about the software, is it something that they can have on their phone or is it something that they would have like on an iPad or a laptop? Right. They could have it on a tablet. They could have it on their personal devices, on the ambulance device. It can be on any device that they choose. So each agency will decide what they would put that software on. And it's great because it doesn't collect any personal health information. It's only going to be age and whatever they input into it, the types of medications they gave, the types of equipment they used, if they shocked, how many jolts they used. It's going to log all those things. It integrates with our electronic health record, but it doesn't have the patient's name or anything. So when they actually go into the patient's chart with their health information, they'll be able to select based on, okay, we saw a two-year-old at 10 o'clock this morning, and they'll be able to pull that into that patient's chart. I'm glad you covered that because I was going to ask about HIPAA and how it complies with HIPAA privacy laws, right. but it sounds like the input path doesn't have any of that. Doesn't in, collect identity. that. Inf- yeah. Right. Doesn't yeah. collect. Yeah. The only identifier is the age and the time that they saw the patient. You know, I imagine EMS personnel will need to be trained on the new system. I'm sure it's something that they'll have to learn how to use. What's the timeline for the training and what will that look like? So the training is actually two phases. There's a great training program. The first phase is training local instructors to actually hold their own courses to provide training for our other 300 plus paramedics. So we'll conduct a training in May, actually. It's coming up right around the corner in a couple weeks here. We're going to have one training course in each county, one in Big Island, one in Maui, we'll have one in Oahu and one on Kauai. This training course is going to be for instructors. So they're they're providers who are going to be educating the other, like I said, the other 300 providers that will be learning the system. This course is great because it's going to cover skills training. They're going to have their lecture portion, of course, telling them about the system and how to work it. But they'll have hands-on skills training as well. There are instructors that are participating from each agency. So those instructors will be teaching their courses in each of their respective agencies. So they'll be scheduling with their providers on when to take the course. When do you expect everyone to be trained and the system to be in full operational use? So right now we're doing the customization of the program. Mm -hmm. So having everything specific to our state's 
orders and the types of drugs that we are allowing the providers to use. And then from there, it's going to really be dependent on how quickly they can get their paramedics scheduled to do that training themselves because they'll be conducting their own courses. So I'm hoping by fall that they'll be able to get everybody trained, but I'll have to keep in touch with them to see okay. when, they, when they're when they able to. And of course, some agencies will finish sooner than others mm-hmm. because you know they have less paramedics than others. That was uh, State Health Department's uh, Christy Luke and Dr. Al Bronstein talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. The new emergency medication dosing system was funded by a federal grant from the EMS for Children program. It's a special program that was championed by the late Hawaii Senator Dan Inouye. Dr. Bronstein says once the system's in place, EMS staff will also be able to use it to calculate dosages for all patients, regardless of age. reality check today has to do with proposed rules for our city beach parks. Honolulu Civil Beats politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us today. Morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story that was written by uh, Kirsten Downey. Right, and she's uh, covering, I think, a budget hearing at the council. You know how those can run on and on. But mm-hmm. This story, uh, an eye-opener, uh, it's about a bill proposed by the mayor, Rick Blangiardi, Bill 19, it's actually presently before the council. And what it would do is it would set limits on commercial activity on city beaches. Uh, and here's what the limit would be. There would just be three commercial tours at a time, or that would just be 10 in a day, right? There would also be restrictions to having those commercial activities or tours during daytime hours, nothing in the, in the nighttime. And this would also only be on weekdays. That would not include weekends, weekends or when locals use uh, the facilities, the beaches, the most. And there would also be a a permit system involved. Anybody that's involved in these activities has to have a permit or else they would get a fine. But here's the problem. Uh, Particularly folks on the North Shore and Windward Oahu, they're pretty upset because they say the mayor's bill would actually roll back protections for some of these places, which are in many ways the most scenic and most popular spots around the island. Yes, and judging by the, uh, the the comments, I think you've got lots of people that are weighing in uh, on this because, yeah, they feel very passionately about this. You know, they they made some gains. Uh, they were able to get some restrictions. But, yeah, they're they're worried that we're watering this down. Yeah, what the mayor is trying to do, and by the way, he didn't respond to Kirsten's uh, inquiry uh, directly, but she has been able to get information that he has said at, at uh, public forums and in the bill itself. And Basically, what the mayor is trying to do uh, is provide some sort of balance, some sort of uh, equity, some sort of uh, system-wide standard so that you could have some limited activity, but you wouldn't totally, you know, uh, if you will, overrun a beach with commercial activity. There would be things uh, to enforce. Probably you would need to have parking and toilets to accommodate people. And, you know, in part, this is a response to the reality. Tourism's up. It's almost back to pre-COVID numbers. And that means service operators, particularly, I think, the wedding business, the wedding industry in particular. uh, I know I'm seeing more in my favorite beaches around Oahu, um, more weddings returning, even without the Japanese tourism coming back in high numbers just yet. So so the mayor is trying to strike a balance. The problem is, is, as you said, it seems like we had already moved to restrict this stuff. I mean, you have to go back over 10, 11 years ago. The city council at that time actually passed that pretty groundbreaking law, really banishing commercial activity at places like Kailua Beach, right? Mm-hmm. And people that love Kailua Beach, that use it, have noticed significant improvement, a much friendlier place, not overrun with uh, other activities, commercial activities, tour buses. So uh, you're, what Kirsten is, is putting forth in her story is that there's going to be a lot of opposition, particularly from North Shore and Windward Oahu communities. Yeah, and I'm curious, you know, I know the mayor has been going uh, around the island with the town hall meetings. I'm, you know, wondering if he's been able to share some of his ideas and, and uh, 
you know, temper maybe some of the reaction. Yes. Kirsten has caught some of that in her story. And again, remember, the mayor did not respond directly to Civil Beat's inquiry. There will be a public discussion going forward. I, th- I think another thing that kind of confuses people is that it was Mayor Blangiardi himself who also signed Bill 38. That was the one that was extending that ban, the commercial activity ban, from Waimanalo to Makapu'u. And, and, but the mayor has been on record saying, look, I really don't want to ban this completely on beaches. We need to have some sort of ba- balance. But, you know, if, you're, if you like using Waimea and Sunset Beach, Makapu'u, I've mentioned Kailua, these popular beaches, it's very frustrating. Yeah, you know, North Shore, you've got a lot of the surf schools. Uh, Same with Waikiki, you know, Kapilani Park, lots of the parking taken up over there. So yeah, I mean, they're trying to, I guess, strike a balance, but boy, does this strike a nerve with a lot of the residents. It does. I just just would add one other point. Laura Thielen is actually the parks director and Mayor Blangiardi, and we actually had her in for an ed board where she talked, uh, an editorial board, directly about this, this idea. And she has, you might remember, she was the state senator from Kailua, from Waimanalo, who was instrumental back in the day, making sure that, you know, getting those commercial activities banned from Kailua, particularly from the boat ramp, right, that's down Mm -hmm. there by the Lanikai end. Uh, And she points out that any given day, there were 250 commercial buses driving around Oahu. They're going to stop somewhere. She's kind of in this, not kind of, she is now in this awkward position of having to to defend her boss, to advocate for her boss's policy, even though she herself was a leader in trying to to limit commercial activity in these very popular places. Yeah, yeah not a very easy solution uh, to this problem. You're trying to strike a balance, right, between the commercial uh, interests and residences, or, uh, uh, residents' concerns. But, yeah, it's a tough one. It is, and it's not going away. I guarantee we'll be talking more <laughs> about this. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We've been chatting with uh, editor Chad Blair. You can read Kirsten Downey's story about the proposed rules online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today on Stargazer, HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips discuss news about a mission to search for life around moons deep in our solar system. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, turning to the expertise of Christopher Phillips. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers, both Mars and Venus, can be seen in the western sky after sunset. Both planets are bright and easy to spot. The moon this week is passing through its full moon phase, and as such, conditions for spotting those faint objects in the heavens will be challenging. We have an incredibly exciting report, though, about a uh, mission to look for signs of life, and it's going to be going out into one of our uh, great planets here in the solar system, I understand, and, and around some of its moons. Indeed. Another successful launch of 2023 was marked by the roar of booster rockets as the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE for short, blasted off en route for Jupiter. The spacecraft was carried aloft by an Ariane 5 heavy launch rocket that blasted off from French Guiana in South America. Its mission is to survey the icy worlds of Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto for signs of life. This is very cool. How exactly, Chris, is this thing going to be looking for life? Describe some of the gear or whatever. Well, JUICE is not a lander or a rover like the spacecraft we see that normally go to Mars. It's a fully-fledged spacecraft that will conduct numerous flybys of Jupiter's moons. It will use high-resolution, multispectral imaging, as well as surface-penetrating radar in order to probe the interiors of these large icy moons. And these moons, there's got to be something special about them. Don't hide that from us. <laughs> yeah, well, you're absolutely right. All three of these moons are thought to support large bodies of liquid water, and in some cases, large subsurface oceans. Uh, Juice, hopefully, will confirm these findings. And in terms of the kind of life that we could find, is it going to be something like a plant? Is it going to be something like your kitty cat sprout? Is it going to be something like a <laughs> brine shrimp? What do you think it's going to be? 
Well, we think it's probably going to be quite simple, although we really don't know at this point. The prime candidate, if, of course, these oceans turn out to be viable, is a certain type of organism called a halophile. These are salt-loving organisms that are found in oceans here on the Earth. The ones on the Jovian moons, however, will be of a completely separate tree of life, and that's what makes this super exciting, if they exist, of course. I'd be much more excited if you said it was going to be like your kitty cat, because that's a very fuzzy and soft creature. But <laughs> I guess it's not going to be that cool. Uh, we'll get excited about Halo Files and Juice. What a cool name that thing's got. Uh, how long till we get the some news from Juice? <laughs> well, it's going to be a little bit of a wait, about eight years ah! fact, before Juice actually <laughs> arrives at Jupiter. <laughs> then the spacecraft will begin a multi-year survey of the system. So in the meantime, you can kick back, relax, and just enjoy. Enjoy the ride to Jupiter. Another one of these classic timelines from Christopher Phillips and uh, another Stargazer here. Thank you, brother. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you on a future Stargazer. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Time now for your Beckard Quiz Answer. In today's quiz, we reminded you about an actor whose face is familiar, but perhaps his name eludes you. We're talking about the thespian who portrayed Hawaii's governor on the original Hawaii Five O television series for 12 years. Our mystery man also starred in movies of the 40s and 50s, such as Unknown Island and Beyond the Blue Horizon. The actor seemed to specialize in picking up roles set in the Pacific. Local viewers may remember his starring role in Roger Corman's 1957 classic B-movie, Naked in Paradise, which was filmed on location in Kauai. His name pops up in the credits for a string of 50 sci-fi movies and for the 1954 horror potboiler Creature from the Black Lagoon. For truly devoted fans of Richard Denning, you may even recall him portraying Dr. Graham in the series Flying Doctor, a British television series based on a BBC radio series of the same name. And congrats to our winner, Gordon Lau from downtown Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz, and if you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Manoa Valley Theater, presenting the play that goes wrong. In this comedy, a drama company finds that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Opening May 11th, manoavalleytheater.com. Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our Community Advisory Board. As a volunteer, you'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Molokai, Maui, Kauai, or the Big Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. When COVID-19 hit, the United States wasn't ready. We're about 60,000 public health workers in deficit. We talked to the director of the CDC about what we've learned from the pandemic. Our laboratory infrastructure within the nation has been underinvested in, and our data systems across the nation have been underinvested in. On the next Reveal. Beginning Wednesday evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com.
Our next story is about community composting. Nate Hoxton talked with the conversation Stephanie Hahn about his business, Kaimuki Compost Collective. Parents take heart. Hoxton remits to having been a terrible high school student, but then went on to become a UH chemistry major and has turned his passion for problem solving into a business venture that helps our community dispose of waste. Growing up, I was a horrible high school student. I was the one class I liked, the chemistry teacher was cool, so I took it. And then what I liked about the degree was it had me think about how to make things. It's not necessarily the chemistry part, it's the approach. For the labs, we had to follow up procedure and like make stuff and so it was more about making things because I always was making things so that was my main interest so after graduating I kind of was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and didn't have a job yet all that stuff and I always have these all these half-finished experiments in my house my roommates always uh complain about it but one of them was I was like fermenting food waste and I was trying to make it into liquid fertilizer for vertical farming I figured out how to do it, but I realized that I needed bigger equipment. But then in the process, I learned about the issue of food waste, like its contributions to greenhouse gases and just we waste 40% of all food produced in the United States. And in developing countries, it's like 50 to 60%. All this effort we're putting into it, and it's just we're just throwing it away. And also growing up, I also noticed all the stuff we were throwing away. That's something I always thought about as a little kid. We're just throwing away all this stuff. So... Learned about the food waste stuff, realized that composting was kind of a solution to it. It was interesting to me because I was like, that's something I can do in my backyard. There's so many big problems that it feels like we can't do anything about it. Food waste thing was just, oh, we can compost to do it. We work with residences and with other businesses. For residences, it'd be monthly subscriptions where we come pick up food waste. We give them a five-gallon bucket, kind of line it with some shredded cardboard, and they put the waste, and they leave it on their doorstep, and then we come get it, and we cycle it out. And they also get a countertop bin, so when they're chopping up stuff, they put it in the little bin, then they transfer it to the bigger one when it's time for us to pick it up. There, we're also doing a drop-off service. So that's why we started at the um, farmer's markets and stuff, where people can come drop off their food waste. And then we're also kind of expanding like our business-to-business thing, restaurants. The big, our big target right now is HOAs, property managers, so we can get like whole buildings at once rather than like a couple people. Who is subscribing? Because technically, wouldn't they normally, what, put it in the garbage disposal or put it in the trash? To preface, a lot of these businesses have already popped up, especially like in the mainland U.S. I've seen them in Australia, New Zealand. Like, I didn't create the business model. I kind of ran into it. I was concerned. I was like, who's going to pay for this? Because you can just throw it in the trash. It's free. People want it. And everyone who uses the service absolutely loves it. The market, it's people who have expendable income so it's younger professionals i'd say between 25 to 50 actually mostly women (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh interesting well maybe it's because they're more potentially in charge of cooking so more aware of waste it could be i think a lot of them are like they all work full time like you can just tell so i've had this theory with friends and a lot of them are like well women are just more like they care more about things I kind of feel like it's kind of true. Like, Oh, okay. So Sometimes, like, they'll show up. They'll be with their boyfriend or husband, and they'll just be in the background like, this is stupid. And then they're all, like, <laughs> excited. Like, it's happened so many times. Like, they'll come together. The guy just sits there, like, not caring. And then the girl is always, like, super excited about it. I hate to separate it into, like, genders, but it's overwhelmingly female. That is interesting because mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion about how environmental action and and leadership roles are often now women taking up the mantle for this type of thing. Right. There's right. something to it. Okay, just walk me through this. So you collect all the stuff and then you're going to put it in a big heap and there's lots of worms there? I mean, how does this work? So yeah, there's two different forms of composting and hot composting and there's vermicomposting, and there's a couple other ones, Bokashi and stuff, but those are the main. The worms, you put food waste and um, newspaper and stuff, and you kind of layer it up, and then they eat it, and then basically their poop is the compost. It's actually probably the best compost you could get. We kind of do stuff at scale, so a lot of people who do the worms, they get bins and they put them in their house, and a bunch of people do it. Like, you'd be surprised. Like, it's like a little mini society of people who do, like, vermicomposting. But yeah, I don't do that because I think we do more scale, and it'd be hard to manage giant piles of food waste just with worms. So what we do is hot composting. 
So what happens is you layer certain materials, so food waste and brown materials such as mulch, leaves, stuff like that. It has to be in a certain ratio. You water it and you turn it or keep it aerated, and the microorganisms in the pile and the fungus break it down through like heat and through eating it, and it turns into compost, which is basically like brown dirt. So how do you heat this up in order for their bacteria or whatever to be killed off? Yeah, so the heat is produced. It's a byproduct from the microorganisms or the bacteria. So they produce the heat. And it's not just like a little bit of heat. Like they produce it to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's why if you see videos of hot compost, there'll be steam coming off. It's kind of like how our bodies work. We're doing a lot of work. We heat up. They do the same thing. And so they're actually called thermophilic bacteria. And so they're like special bacteria that are decomposers that can withstand high heat. There's concerns for pathogens, which this is a whole other conversation. But the reason why composting is good is because the heat kills bad bacteria, and those ones right. thrive. Yeah. So it's naturally, you're saying naturally the heat comes up when there is this certain kind of chemical composition. It's not like you have to heat it up physically. No. How long is it before the process is completed? So it varies based on equipment, manpower. So a lot of people who do, like, composting, they'll, like, throw all this stuff in a pile, and it takes a year. And that technically is composting, but it's because you're kind of managing real composting. You're, like, turning the pile and stuff because the bacteria can actually kill themselves because they overheat. They'll produce enough heat to kill themselves once they go over 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's why you aerate it, and you keep watering it, and you turn it because you're, like, maintaining an environment where they can live versus, like, you're, if you leave it, there's a cycle of, like, life and death where they have to rebuild every time. For you, you have, I'm guessing, a lot of these different compost piles in different places. Is that how, you know, who who are you serving exactly? Where are they located? So I started just in my backyard. My That was my biggest concern because I don't own any land. So I was like, how am I going to scale this up? I was very careful about how to set this whole process up. There's a farm in Hawaii Kai that we just are starting to work with, and they have nine acres to help us. We can do bigger stuff there. Um, we just built a compost bay out of cinder blocks at the Surfrider Ocean Friendly Garden. We just fixed, finished that. And then there's a UH organic farm in Manoa Valley, and we basically rebuilt their bay there. What is the reality then of someone doing compost on their own versus doing your service? It's a lot of work, especially if you're doing the hot composting. Like, you have to regularly maintain it and turn it because there's odors involved and stuff, and if you're not taking care of it properly, like, you can tell. It can smell or it can attract pests, stuff like that. If people want to do it at home, then they should because that's the mission anyway. It's like if we're treating our waste sustainably in any kind of way, then that's fine. I don't think the end is to just how do I make money off everyone to be sustainable. Like, it's we're all doing stuff, then that's what matters. For at home, a lot of people do the worms. That's what works the best because you just have a little bin on your own personal like home or family scale. It's really hard for someone to do hot composting, which is what we do, at home because the mass matters. The amount of waste to start, you need a cubic foot basically of space. I'm not going to say it's impossible to hot compost on your own, but you'd have to go out and source material because you wouldn't be making enough at home to do it. What do you think some of the concerns are of people your age in terms of environmental action, and do you see more independent action as a result from young people? Hmm. Everyone's aware of what's happening. I don't know, it feels like just the past three summers, each one's been hotter. My family's from the East Coast. Like, I remember, you know, instead of one hurricane a year, now there's just, like, one after another. There's more hurricanes. A lot of people argue, oh, well, it's just, you know, there's cycles or there's lots and there's not. But there's definitely more. I think we all see the problem. And then we see, like, waste and how it's everywhere and just all the unsustainable things we do. Like, we're all having to drive cars and stuff. I think in terms of people taking action, definitely not enough. I I feel like we all want to, but... We don't because we're all busy, because it's hard enough 
with the economy or getting a job or maintaining your own life standard of living, I think it's almost impossible to do anything. That's something I was struggling with and then why I was so intent on making it a business. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to volunteer and do this. If I'm, you know, taking my waste and my friend's waste, that's fine. And I can make it do and we're all happy with it. If it's going to make a difference, then it needs to be big. And if it's going to be big, then we got to, like, fund it. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any words to any young entrepreneurs who might be interested in starting a business that would make a difference, like yourself? I think the first tip would be to just do it. Don't just sit around and like say you're going to do it. Just do it because it's really hard and it takes forever. Like I guess I'm over a year of starting this and I feel like it's just now gaining traction. And that's probably fast in the grand scheme of business growth. If you have an idea, then do it now. And I think another tip would be to embrace help. I was really trying to do it all by myself. Not because... I don't want help, but I was just like, oh, I don't want to, like, ask people if they're not, like, getting paid for it or something. I'm trying to, like, do this full time. So, I don't know, I have lots of friends, and they come help me at all the farmer's markets. We had a bunch of Earth Days events. They wanted to come help, and I've become much more open to, like, people coming to help, especially when they, like, express lots of interest in helping. I think those are two big ones. And I guess don't be afraid to share it with people. If you're sharing it with people, make sure you're doing something because a lot of people will, like, say they're doing something and then like publicize it a lot and then they're not really doing much that just backs up just do it (laughs) that's great advice really wish you the best of luck with this thank you so much thank you that was nate hogston and hpr stephanie hahn talking about the kaimuki compost collective the company deals with food waste based on models used in cities in the u.s as well as in australia and new zealand does it for us today up tomorrow a big island principal gets creative imagine being in charge of both high schoolers and elementary students in a rural area share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org you can also find the conversation podcast on spotify apple or anywhere else you tune in i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 